Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to the Orchard Community Church Online. My name is Chip, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Orchard, and we're really glad that you're taking time to join us as we kick off a brand new series in the book of James. Now, you just heard the entirety of James chapter one read by one of our uh, wonderful young people here at the Orchard, but what I wanna do to get started in the series may be a little bit different. What we're gonna do to get started, we're gonna have a little bit of fun. We're gonna do a Bible trivia quiz. All right. So if you're at home right now, you play along, feel free. Uh, if you think you can get them in in time, drop the answers in the comments. Uh, but I've got some questions. Let's see how good you really are. All right. Question number one. Here we go. Who was Jacob's youngest son? So he had 12 of them. Who was his youngest son? Do you know? Answer is Benjamin. Benjamin. All right. That was, that was pretty easy. If you had trouble with that one, it's going to get harder from here. Second question. Here we go. How many people were aboard Noah's Ark. I'll give you a minute. Do the math in your head. I know this was before the book of Numbers. All right, here we go. The answer is eight. Eight people were aboard Noah's Ark. Third question. Here it comes. What is Esau's other name? This was a name that was given to Esau, and uh, you hear it more in the Bible. But anyway, do you know what it is? His other name. Here we go. Edom. Answer is Edom. How are you doing? Three for three so far? All right. Question four. How many men in the Bible were named Dodo? Now, I feel like this should be a multiple choice question, but I'm not going to make it that easy for you. I will give you a hint. The answer is not zero. How many people in the Bible were named Dodo? Answer is three. Believe it or not, there are three distinct individuals in the Bible whose name were Dodo. All right. So those of you feeling cocky, Four for four, here is the final question. What is the longest name in the Bible? What is the longest name in the Bible? I tell you this, I will give you bonus points if you can also spell it correctly, because I'm not sure I can even pronounce it correctly. All right, here you go. Longest name in the Bible is the prophet Isaiah's second son, Mahershala Hasbaz. <laughs> I guess. Anyway, uh, how did you do on that test? How did you do on that quiz? Uh, Anybody maybe get five for five? Maybe even spelled it correctly? I I don't know. Uh, But here's the good news. If you did great, if you didn't get a single one, I want to let you know this from the bottom of my heart. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Now I'm proud of you if you knew all of that, but I'm not disappointed in you if you didn't. Here's the truth. It didn't matter uh, how many you got right or how many you didn't. Bible trivia quits being cool when you get out of Awanas. So here's the thing I want you to take away from that. Why did we do a Bible trivia game to start off our series in the book of James? Here's why. It's because spiritual maturity is seen in how we live, not what we know. Now, here's what I do know. I know that it's really easy for us as followers of Jesus or those of us who've grown up in church to kind of equate our spiritual maturity with how much we know about the Bible. You may feel like if you missed every single question that I just asked you, that there's no way that you're a mature Christian or that if you nailed all of them and spelled Mahershala Hashbaz correctly, that you are a uh, epitome of spiritual maturity. But the truth of the matter is, 
is that our spiritual maturity is not seen in what we know. It's not even seen in how often we go to church. I know in a church I attended early on, it seemed like the highest mark of spiritual maturity was just who came to church the most. But really, you know, what we know about Scripture and how often we come to church in and of itself, neither one of those are what makes us spiritually matures, uh, mature. They, they are tools that help us grow in spiritual maturity, but by themselves, they are not spiritual maturity. So if spiritual maturity isn't what we know about the Bible or how often we come to church. How do we know what spiritual maturity is then? What do we mean when we say that it's the way we live, not just what we know? Well, see, that right there is why we are in the book of James. That's why we're going to take the next five weeks and look through this very short book written by James, the brother of Jesus, and watch, for a, watch as James teaches us over the next five weeks what spiritual maturity actually looks like, and more importantly, how you and I can grow into that spiritual maturity. And we're going to see that it's not a maturity that's based on random Bible trivia, and it's not a maturity that's based on cold, rote spiritual disciplines, but it is a maturity that is based on character that is being shaped in us to look like the character of Jesus himself. So here's what we're going to do. If you got your Bibles, go with me to James chapter 1, and we're just going to dig right in as we get started in our study of James. So James chapter 1, we're going to start reading in verse 2. If you don't have your Bible there with you, you can keep following along. It'll be up here on the screen. But we're just going to read two verses, and these verses uh, will help us understand the direction that James is taking uh, in his letter as a whole. So James chapter 1, verse 2, James write this. He says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So that's kind of James laying out for us the big picture of what he's going to talk about in the next five chapters. Uh, but for us to really understand uh, what James is getting at, it may be helpful if we understand the people that he was talking to. See, James is one of the earliest New Testament books that was written and sent out to the church. And James is a little bit different because it was not sent out to a particular church, but it was sent out to those Jewish believers who were scattered in the world abroad. Matter of fact, many people believe that James was not even one particular personal letter, but a collection of James' uh, sermons and teachings that were recorded and approved by James to be sent out to the church. But why did he do this? Why did he take his teachings, condense it down, record them in one place, and send them out to the church? Well, the reason he did so is because in those early years of the New Testament period, Christians were experiencing persecution. And when we say persecution, I don't necessarily mean like extreme persecution. There would come a time when Christians would experience unimaginable persecution. Uh, under the emperor Nero, Christians were taken, tied to poles, covered in tar, and lit on fire to light his garden at night. That, that's unimaginable for us, but that's not necessarily the persecution that the people James was writing to that they were experiencing. They were experiencing maybe more of a low-level persecution. 
persecution. And what we mean by that is they were experiencing uh, social distance, not like we're talking about with the coronavirus, but they were distanced from social circles and pushed to the edges of society. They were experiencing as Christians economic boycotts on their businesses simply because they were Christians. And so James writes to them about how do you do this? How do you handle this? How do you process this? And how do you mature through this? Now, I think that's pretty relevant to us, right? I don't think I need to take time this morning to explain to you how relevant what they were going through is still relevant to us today. Uh, But what I think we see here is a way that we can connect with those Christians through history and still see how relevant James' words are to to us today. And as we experience some of that low-level persecution as the church in America, where we as believers are pushed to the fringes of society, for holding to the teachings of Scripture, uh, as that happens, we can embrace it rather than run from it, knowing that what James is going to teach us is that it is that persecution that is going to help mature us and grow our character as we follow Jesus. And that's kind of how he starts off. Look, look back at verse 2 with me for just a second. Look at what James says. He says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Now, that idea of a great joy here is something that's pretty important for us to get because what James is telling the Christians he's writing to, what he would tell us today is that when you start facing these trials, it's not something, like I said, that you should run away from, but it's something that you should take with joy. Now, it's important probably to note that joy and happiness aren't the same thing. You don't have to be happy about the trials you're facing in life. You don't have to be happy about the troubles that you are facing. But I do believe that James is saying we can choose to face those trials, to face those troubles with joy. Why? Because we know that our joy as followers of Jesus is based on the future promises of God more than our current circumstances and reality. And so James begins his letter there saying, look, don't choose to focus. If you want to be a mature follower of Jesus, if you want to change the way you live, if you want to grow into a Christ-like character, don't focus on your present reality, but instead focus on the future promises of God and find joy there. Well, what type of promise? What what, what did he mean by promise? See, what he says is those trials, the reason we can have joy is because those trials produce something in us. Look here at at verse four, what James writes. He says, and let endurance, that's what these trials produce in us. He says that clearly in three, produce endurance and let endurance have its full effect. So look at this, you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, see, that's huge because what he's saying is is that these trials and troubles that we face in our life, whether they come from circumstances uh, that happen to us all, such as sickness and uh, death and discouragement, or if it's persecution that we're experiencing just for being followers of Jesus— What James is saying is that should produce joy in us because those trials are going to bring about in us something that we would have not otherwise found, and that is endurance. There's no way to gain the endurance that James is talking about unless we experience the trials that he's talking about. And then James says that that endurance itself 
is going to produce in us maturity and completeness. Uh, let me read to you a, a quote from D.A. Carson, uh, a great uh, modern Christian theologian. He's a commentator. And this is what he writes about endurance. He says, this endurance also has an effect. It's like holding a sword blade in the fire until it's thoroughly tempered. In this case, the sword's the believer and the fire is the testing and the tempering that the believer becomes mature and complete through not lacking anything. He says the Greek term here for mature is often translated as perfect. This is the virtue that we see in Noah when he is called blameless. This is what Jesus intends when he calls his followers to be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. It indicates, listen, a character like God's. This type of maturity is produced by holding fast to the faith and Christian virtue while in the fire of persecution. The impurities in one's character will be burned off. The end result will not just be maturity, but completeness, which means that not a single part of God-like character will be lacking. And that's good stuff. And that's why James is writing this letter because he says, have hope, find joy in the midst of what you're going through right now, in the middle of the craziness that is 2020, we can gain endurance. And that endurance produces in us a maturity and completeness seen in a Christ-like character. Well, let's skip down a few verses there in chapter one, because James is going to go beyond showing us uh, what this type of maturity and completeness is in our character. He's going to show us more specifically how we can grow that maturity and character in our lives. Let's read together, starting there in verse 22 of chapter one. James writes this, he says, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in the mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forget for a hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, th that's pretty incredible the way that James frames that so simply, right? That, that James there in, in verse 22 says that we are to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Of the word. Think about that for a minute. When, when he there in verse 22 says, look, if you want to grow in maturity, if you want to grow in Christ-like character, you can't just sit around and listen to God's word preached on Sunday morning and then do nothing about it. If you want to grow in Christ-like character, you have to take what the word of God says and put it into action in your life. Guys, that is huge. He says that godliness, that maturity is not what we know, but what we do. That's amazing to me. It's challenging too, because I think that no matter how many questions you got right on that quiz at the beginning of, of our talk, you know more Bible than you live out. I mean, you know, I think that we can know that we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's still something that's beyond my ability to do on most days. You know, I think that we have to begin to reshape 
how we think about maturity and to grow in maturity, not by trying to just learn more, but by learning to live it out more. And we're going to see next week how those two, you know, play off of each other. Uh, but for right now, I want to draw your attention um, here, here to what James says, because I think he, in verse um, 23, gives us a great picture of the power of the Word of God to shape this character in us. Read verse 23 uh, again. It says, because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. Now that is a very powerful image that James is giving us here. James is saying that the word of God is a mirror that we are looking into. Why is that important? Because James is showing us one of the primary functions of God's word. God's word, like a mirror, shows us our character. Well, what do we mean by that? What I mean is, is that when you read the Bible, it, it is not a, a checklist of items that you're just checking off. And I did this, I did this, I did this. It, it's not a weapon that you're to use to hack apart the people closest to you and said, well, if you did this, this, and this, I'd be different. The Bible's given to us, the word of God is given to us as a mirror for us to look at and see how far short we really fall. I heard a pastor say one time that the Ten Commandments were never meant for you to be able to live up to. It was meant to show you how far you were from God's standard of holiness. And I think that's true. See, far too often we like to think of our character at a higher level than it really is. We like to think that we're a better person than probably we really are. Why is that? Because we like to judge ourselves on our intentions, not our actions, and yet we'll judge others on their actions, not intentions. What do I mean? Well, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, it's just because they're an inconsiderate jerk. If you cut somebody off in traffic, it's because they're a slow driver and you have places to be, you know? You judge yourself off of your intentions. And I think when we do that, sometimes we excuse bad behavior in our lives. And what the scriptures do is help reveal to us our character. And get this, we're going to talk about it next week. It's going to help shape that character more into the image of Jesus himself. Now, here's the cool thing, I, I think. I think the cool thing is once we begin to define spiritual maturity as what we do, not just what we know, when we see it in terms of character, you begin to see that all over the New Testament. And here's what I mean. Just think about some familiar passage of scripture. Think about the parable of the good Samaritan. It talks about maturity based on what the Samaritan does, not what the priest and Levite know. And we're going to press into that in our more video this week. You can find it on our website. Think about Jesus talking about the wise man who builds his house on the rock so that it can withstand the storm. Jesus says, blessed is the one who hears my word and acts on it. It's like Peter, who in his letter uh, takes James' passage here and repeats it almost verbatim. When you see that Scripture defines maturity not as what you know, not as how often you come to church, but who you are becoming, what you are living every single day, you begin to see that pattern everywhere. And one of the places that I see it the most, and just hit me like a ton of bricks, is in Paul's letter to the Galatian church. Paul's letter to the Galatian church, and in chapter 5, Paul writes this, and this will probably be familiar to you. He talks about what we refer to as the fruit of the Spirit. And in verse 22, he says this, 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. And so when we read that, I think what we have here is Paul's definition of spiritual maturity. What is Paul's definition of maturity? It's these fruit of the Spirit. And you look at these, look at these. Love, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Here's what I think is so interesting about this. You can't do any of these things. What do you mean, Chip? You don't do love. You don't do peace. You don't do kindness. Here's what, here's the thing. These are not things you do these are things that you become. You don't do love, you become loving. You don't do patience, you become patient. You don't do self-control, you become self-controlled. So Paul understands spiritual maturity, the fruit of the Spirit, is not even just those things that we know, not just those things that we do, but who we are becoming. Our character as it is formed. And here's the thing, the reason I say our character and not our characteristics is because this is the fruit of the Spirit. And you see this here, is, not are, because this is all the fruit of the Spirit. You can't cherry pick which of these are characteristics you have as a mature Christian. If you desire to be a mature follower of Jesus, this is something that is going to describe you so that you are mature and complete, lacking nothing. So often we look at this and say, well, love, check, joy, check, peace, not so much, patience, working on it. But that, that's not the point, guys. The point here is that this is what Christ-like character looks like, and that should be our definition of spiritual maturity. But the problem is we don't think that way, do we? Most of us would tend to define our spiritual maturity based on the things that we're not doing. We try and avoid certain things. We try to prevent sin in our life. And can I tell you this? You should prevent sin in your life. You should not just sin and say it's all under the blood. That drives me nuts when I hear people say, well, it's all under the blood, I'm already forgiven. Then you have obviously not read Paul in Romans chapter six, where he says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, absolutely not, God forbid. But spiritual maturity is more than just preventing sin in our lives. I mean, think about it like this. As a child of God, we know that we are already forgiven and that our eternal hope is already secure in Jesus. If you've come to the place in your life, and maybe you did it in our last series, The Big Screen, where you saw your brokenness, you saw your helplessness, you saw that your sin was going to separate you from God for an eternity, and you cried out to Jesus to do for you what you can never do for yourself, and that is to forgive you of your sin and bring you back into a right relationship with the Father. If you've done that, your eternal home is secure. But if you're defining maturity just by the sin you're preventing, you're like a football team playing prevent defense in the fourth quarter. <laughs> yeah, the game may be in the bag, but when you run eight men deep, you're going to let the other team run up and down the field and put points on the board. It's not just about what we're preventing, guys. It's about what we're pursuing. 
We've got to shift our view of spiritual maturity. It's not just about we know. It's not just about the habits that we have. It's not just about the sin we prevent. But are we pursuing Christ-like character? Let me leave you with this. Here's the takeaway for today. Maturity isn't found in what I'm doing, but what I'm pursuing. So let me ask you that as we end today. What are you pursuing? How do you define spiritual maturity? Are you pursuing Christ-like character? Are you becoming someone who exhibits the fruits of the Spirit? Are you becoming someone who puts enough weight on the Word of God that you are willing to live it out and not just soak it in? Listen, if that's not how you define spiritual maturity, I would encourage you to take some time this week and get that straight in your head. Maybe take a long, hard look at yourself and maybe say, hey, have I just thought because I come to church most Sundays that that's what makes me a good Christian? Or, or because I, I put a check in the offering box once a month, that makes me a good Christian? Or, or because I know uh, the books of the Bible and can list them in order, that makes me a good Christian? Or because I got five out of five on the test Chip gave us at the very beginning, that makes me a good Christian? Listen, if that's the way you think this week, you need to start rethinking. And you need to think about spiritual maturity in a completely different way. And where we're going from here is next week, we're going to show how what we believe in turn shapes what we do and who we become. And then we're going to press deeper into some of those individual characteristics that make up a mature and complete believer. But for now, let me pray for you. Father God, I pray for my friends who are watching today. And God, I pray for conviction in their life, that if they have tried to define spiritual maturity by any other measuring stick than Christ-like character, God, I pray today that they would be convicted of that, that you through the mirror of your word would show them the places in their life where they're not becoming people who look like you. And so God, I pray that as we go through this short book of James, that you will radically change the way we think about spiritual maturity so that at the end of these five weeks, we would look more like you and less like the world. God, we're gonna trust you to do great things, not just for our good, but for the glory of your name. And it's in that name that we pray, the name of Jesus, amen.